This episode is brought to you by Leggings Under Your Jeans, because walking to campus in 10-degree weather is painful. Welcome back, everybody, to my fave quirk chemist, the sequel. I'm your host, Geraldo. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I made those. I mean, it's, it's fine, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to my fave quirk chemist. <laughs> mm. wow we, we haven't done this in so long <laughs> welcome back everybody to my fave great chemist i'm your host Geraldo, and i'm beck and we are very very excited to be back at it we both have missed y'all immensely um, as some of you may know grad school can be quite stressful and time consuming so that's why we decided to take a little break last fall um, however, we are now ready to bring back the amazing stories of Queer Chemist for season two. Yes, um, we have a couple of interviews that we recorded last year before a break. So the interview for today's episode was actually recorded in September of 2020. It's very, very good. So with that, here's our show. Hi, everyone. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, my name is Benny Chan. I go by uh, he pronouns. I also respond to they pronouns. My background, so I, I did my undergraduate degree at a small undergraduate institution called Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Then I took a year off and worked at Merck for a year as an analytical chemist. And then I decided I did not want to be in industry anymore. So I decided to enroll in a PhD program at Penn State University. And after Penn State, uh, I was deciding between working at ExxonMobil or going to do a postdoc. And I decided I did not want to work for an anti-gay company like uh, ExxonMobil. So I decided to do a postdoc at Colorado State and Los Alamos National Labs in New Mexico. So it was a joint postdoc between the two. Right now, uh, I am a professor in the, the Department of Chemistry at the College of New Jersey in Ewing, New Jersey, right outside of Trenton. And I am also currently department chair. My research mm -hmm. interest uh, is really wide. I was trained as a materials chemist. I did fuel cell electric catalysis. I also, my postdoc was in actinide chemistry, so solid state actinide chemistry and working through synthesis of materials and with a lot of X-ray diffraction. And now I have a joint research project with the Department of Sociology to study why students and uh, succeed and fail at STEM. And it's now expanded into understanding how, how faculty change in our new environment of diversity and inclusion and how can we accelerate that process. So I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Yeah, we're happy yeah. to have you. Yeah, that's an impressive career. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we're excited to dive into some of the specifics of, mm -hmm. uh, of this career. Sure. So getting started, how do you find your way to inorganic chemistry? And, and how was your experience as an LGBTQ plus grad student at Penn State? Awesome. So that's a great question. So inorganic chemistry, it's... I started because I did undergraduate research at Franklin and Marshall College, and my undergraduate research advisor uh, was a solid state chemist. So I, that made me really interested in things like X-ray diffraction, making new materials. Um, so that was a, a, an awesome experience. And, and I decided to do inorganic chemistry because I hated organic. Um, I had a really old school uh, professor for organic chemistry, 
And I tried the, the worst thing to do. I was deciding between a biology major and chemistry major. The worst thing to do was try to memorize all the reactions. Um, and that's what, that's what this professor kind of led on, that that was the way to study. And it just was really, really bad experience. So I wanted to do anything that did not contain any carbon atoms or hydrogen atoms. So moving far away from that as possible. So that's why I decided to do inorganic chemistry, uh, particularly solid state materials. So um, at Penn State, uh, working on uh, noble metal fuel cell electric catalysis, thinking about combinatorial methods for uh, discovering fuel cell catalysis. So I actually didn't come out um, until I was a graduate student at Penn State. I pretty much knew that I was part of the queer community. Back then it was just gay and lesbian. This was in the um, mid nineties. So, you know, I knew I was a gay kid uh, in undergrad, was completely closeted. I waited till I, I got to grad school because that was the first time I was completely financially independent. Like I did not depend on family to pay for school, pay for housing or anything else. So it was about my second year in graduate school, I decided to come out to um, a bunch of friends. And overall, it was a great, uh, it was a good experience. Uh, that's where I kind of met some folks in the community and found myself a, a uh, my own group of people that I would hang out with at grad school. But most of my people in my lab were super supportive, uh, didn't really say much of anything. So it was overall, it was a, it was a pretty good experience. You know, grad school's rough. <laughs> It, it's a it's a tough time for all of us, but yeah, adding you know discovery of yourself and your self identity on top of everything else is really challenging, which I'm sure many people kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. Through doing these interviews, we hear common themes kind of throughout, and mm-hmm. um, one big theme that we hear, you know, no matter what age this person is or where they are at in their career path, um, graduate school, a lot of people come in on a better foot when it comes to like understanding your identity than maybe our experiences in undergrad um, or from like where we're from, like where our family is at. So um, it's, it's cool that graduate school can be this, this place where you can come in as kind of an adult. Like it's the first, at least for me, it was like the first like semi-adult thing that I was doing with my life and so like coming in with a little bit more knowledge about who you are and more comfortable with like being out um I think is a cool trend that we've heard in a lot of of these stories that we've heard so yeah definitely I must say I'm a little hurt that when you said that about organic chemistry but I 100% agree with you I dislike professors that make you memorize reactions. Right. No, absolutely. And like these days, uh, you know, I look at organic chemistry and think, oh, these mechanisms that they're going over now. I'm like, that makes so much sense. Why did I learn it that way? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I agree. And it's really good to know, you know, generate transformations and obviously, you know, your chemistry, but there's no need to memorize every white man name, you know, reaction whatever (laughs) yeah that's what it felt like every single you know white old dude plus Mm. all the reagents that that white old dude figured (laughs) out (laughs) i know yeah but it's okay i you know i actually enjoy uh um, organic now it's just it was was kind of traumatic (laughs) going through when you had to make those initial decisions (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah definitely So you then moved on to do a postdoc at Colorado State doing this dual postdoc program. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, How was 
that experience doing dual research um, in two different um, departments, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, kind of, what was your experience being um, an LGBTQ plus person in this new environment? Oh, awesome! So, um, you know, the, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life after grad school. So, I didn't have the greatest experience in grad school. It was rough. Um, by the time I was done, I wasn't sure I was going to still stay in chemistry. Um, I was pretty much sure that I, I just wanted to quit everything, uh, get the degree, walk out, and see what else I can do. So, um, and that's also when I, I said no to ExxonMobil and then I was trying to finish up and graduate. And that's where I was like really kind of depressed about everything. So one of the reasons I went to Colorado State was because it was in Colorado and I could go skiing <laughs> and snowboarding and, and, and kind of work on those kind of things. So trying to think about my work-life balance um, mm-hmm. and that, but it was actually pretty cool. Um, I decided to do the the Colorado State uh, Los Alamos kind of combinations because it was a good alternative to uh, an um, an industrial career. So um, I did come from a low to mid uh, income family. So money is a big concern when you're trying to make these decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, you're essentially in your your late 20s and you haven't really had a career yet. Um, So thinking about, you know, this high paying job at ExxonMobil and then a close match is to work at a national lab mm-hmm. um, in there. So I was kind of targeting national labs and kind of trying to figure out a postdoc that I could do there. And um, I had uh, one of our former students had gone on to Colorado State University to do a postdoc with Peter Dorhout. Um, he was ACS president a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he told me, the, the former grad student told me, oh, he's got a, a whole relationship with Los Alamos National Labs. Uh, doing uranium, thorium, and plutonium chemistry. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> that sounds cool. So yeah, I decided to kind of go that route because typically a national lab pays more and you get to move out west because I, I always, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I'd stayed all my life in Pennsylvania. And it was one of the things I wanted to do was to move out west somewhere, experience the country a little bit. So going out there was pretty awesome um, for that for that work. So in terms of being um, a, a queer person out there, so actually, by the time I was done with grad school, I pretty much um, was, was looking around for jobs. And I already said that I, I didn't want to work at ExxonMobil because at the time they were having issues with their human um, rights campaign uh, equality index. And I sat there and said, you know what? I already have a job offer. Let me go talk to the people at Los Alamos and my future postdoc advisor and come out to them. That was the first time I actually came out professionally, you know, without even meeting people. You know, I, I sat there, I, I had the interview, they gave me the offer, but not really knowing them and just saying, you know, put it all out there. Is this going to be an issue? Because if it's going to be an issue, then I might as well be closeted and make lots of money at ExxonMobil. <laughs> or go out to, to do Colorado State. So my postdoc advisor, Peter, was awesome. He said he didn't care. It's great. You know, we, we really um, want, a, a, you know, a diverse group of people in my lab. So we'd be happy to have you there. And my sponsor at Los Alamos also said, you know, it's fine. You know, we had uh, um, some other gay folks working in, in the lab. Um, so, it, you know, there's, there's, there's a good community 
that is at Los Alamos. So overall, the Colorado experience was fantastic. It, it was really helpful to be in a lab uh, with Peter. He really got my groove to do science again. So after coming out of depression, he actually pulled me out of it. And I credit him for the reason why I'm still in chemistry <laughs> at this point and, and actually loving life. So it was, it was pretty awesome to be in uh, Peter's group. I didn't get a lot of chances to work down at Los Alamos because there was some lab drama down there. Uh, There's a major safety issue. They shut down the lab for a, a while and it made it difficult for me to get my research done down there. But I was spending about a week every month down there. So it was nice to go down there. It's a, you know, that's a beautiful part of the country. Um, so I was really uh, super happy to, to be able to experience New Mexico and, uh, and all their green chili. <laughs> um, one of my favorite kind of uh, foods uh, at, you know, after going to my postdoc. So it was actually a really good experience. And I could really focus on the science and not worry about my identity. Everybody in the lab knew the whole, pretty much the whole department knew. So it was, it was, it was actually, you know, life-changing experience for me. Yeah, that's really nice. I actually met Peter during an ACS a couple of years ago, and he's so funny. He was wearing this periodic table tie and this periodic table sneakers, and he was so proud of him. <laughs> he's a really, he seems really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's awesome. He, yeah, he's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. So then how did this kind of unique postdoc experience prepare you for your career in academia? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, after I was finishing up my, you know, working on my postdoc, I didn't know whether I wanted to be at an R1 institution or a PUI. So I did kind of apply to both. But what it really prepared me was really to think about the scientific method very carefully and think about more fundamental um, science, uh, asking more fundamental questions. So my, my PhD program was in fuel cell electric catalysis. It was super, super applied. I felt like a lot of the research was, you know, outperform the, you know, the best catalyst out there. And that's what it felt like. And I, I kind of lost the vision of what chemistry actually is, which is it, we should be doing that, but we should be studying something and learning something about it. So that was what the, my postdoc really did. We went back to more fundamental kinds of questions like structure property relationships you know what are some basic ways of making new compounds that are interesting and then how do the properties arise based on the structure you know what are the electronics of of that compound of these solid state materials and how does that reflect in terms of things like optical properties or magnetic properties so that was what really prepared me is how to um, ask super fundamental questions which I didn't get too much of in, in um, my um, grad school, but it was just a different environment. We had a different machine going, <laughs> a different system that was working in our lab. So, you know, being able to ask those fundamental questions was critical in terms of working in academics um, because that's, that's how grants are written. And, and thinking in terms of fundamental questions is, is how you get funding for <laughs> a lot of yeah. the projects out there. It's not just about making the new gadgets, particularly in chemistry. Um, it, it probably works pretty well in engineering, but I'm not an engineer, so I'm not trying to optimize something. Uh, I need to sit down and learn about something. So yeah, but you know, I think Peter's group taught me fundamentals of, of science. Yeah, and, and going along with that, um, why did you decide to go into academia and, and work at a PUI? 
and how did you decide what kind of PI you want it to be? Awesome. So yeah, so you know, I you know, I was looking at R ones. I was also considering staying at Los Alamos as a full time faculty member or full time staff member uh, down there. And I decided I, I kind of wanted to, you know, I enjoyed being in Los Alamos, but it was still a little bit isolated uh, for me. I wanted to be somewhere a little more metropolitan with with a larger gay community um, in there. So I decided what really helped me decide was after Colorado State. So I was actually on the job market for two years. Um, the first year, it didn't go so hot. Um, I probably put out about 30 no, it was probably about 60 applications at a mixture of R1s and PUIs because I didn't really know what I wanted at that point. And in terms of the first search, uh, I ended up getting probably about four or five phone interviews, but no site visits. Um, so that was kind of disappointing. And it was um, really hard to figure that out, uh, what was going on and and it took a little bit of time to work towards it. But Peter was like, oh, you can stay in the lab another year, just go into market again. Let's go ahead and figure out what people are looking for, boost your application. And he said that was an option. The other option was to go ahead and do a one-year uh, sabbatical replacement. So a lot of PUIs will hire visiting faculty members for a year. So, and at that point, I, I was like, I don't want to be at an R1 anymore. I don't want to be in the, the grant writing machine that I feel like a lot of the grant R1 institutions are. And I didn't really want a full second family to take care of. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like at an R1, you essentially have your, your research group, which is a family you have to feed and essentially clothe um, and have them do their research. And that's usually through grant funded uh, projects. I, did, I didn't think I wanted that responsibility. And I thought back to my experiences at Franklin and Marshall College and how much I enjoyed that. Um, so I decided the PUI route was the way to go. So it was better for me to actually leave Peter's group, even though he had offered me to stay, to do a visiting assistant professorship at Dickinson College. And I think that was the big difference um, with my second job search, because I had um, that visiting appointment. I ended up getting probably about 10 phone interviews. And I think I had like four or five site visits. And I think at the end of the day, I had three job offers. Um, uh, so I could actually pick where I wanted to go. Um, so that was, that was super convenient. So it was, it was a long route to get there, but it was, it worked out in the long run to, to kind of figure that out. Your second question was about what kind of PI I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to be somebody that was super supportive, that really valued a lot of different kinds of people in the lab, but I also, going to a PUI, I also wanted to have that R1 drive at a PUI. So getting that, you know, getting into the grant writing machine was helpful and getting a whole bunch of funding. Um, so, you know, I did demand quite a bit from my students. Um, so, but I wanted to give that in a supportive environment and, that I had at my postdoc. So uh, working with the students closely, kind of working one-on-one -on -one with them to get started, help them with their own path to success. Uh, it took me a while to figure out that I wasn't trying to make a mini me. I did not want to make somebody else just like me, but it was more about mentoring. It took me a few years to figure that out, about mentoring people to their path to their success. So that is what I am now. It's like, I, I'm just here to help people 
get on their path and on their trajectory to whatever success that they want to have. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So why did you end up ultimately deciding on the College of New Jersey? So like you had a couple options and what was it that like kind of made you gravitate towards the College of New Jersey? Awesome. So it definitely was not the interview that made me want to be there. Um, so I nailed the interview, but I thought I was, you know, they didn't take me out to dinner. They didn't take me out to breakfast. <laughs> it was not a wine and dine kind of experience that I had at my other places. Um, it didn't feel like a recruitment event. So it wasn't because of that. So my other offers was at a California State Institution. It, I think it was Cal State East Bay. And I had another offer at University of Northern Colorado, which I almost took because I wanted to go back to Colorado because I loved it so much out there. Um, the problem with the UNC position, it was not immediately tenure track. They were anticipating that it would turn into tenure track, but they weren't sure. So when you have a tenure track offer, um, I'm going to kind of take the tenure track offer. Mm-hmm. And then Cal State East Bay, I seriously considered that because of its proximity to San Francisco, um, it would have been an easy train ride to get into uh, San Francisco and take in all the, the, the queer life that is available in San Francisco. However, I looked at the cost of housing and what they offered me. I felt like it was going to be near poverty rates of living in the, in the Bay Area. And then so uh, the College of New Jersey actually gave me a phenomenal offer. It was a good $20,000 more than the the offer at at Cal State East Bay. Um, And it was actually the highest offer I had ever heard a PUI give for it. So, um, and I found out later that it's because uh, we are at TCNJ, we're a union faculty. So the union actually negotiates for um, higher salaries uh, for awesome. us. Yep. Yeah, awesome. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so how they decided on the, the salaries was was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, so it wasn't just about money, but you know, I sat down and really looked at, you know, ratings, you know, I know how flawed the US News and World Report is. However, if you don't know anything about the institution, it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always listed in probably the top five of the Northeast regional universities and colleges. So it was always listed up top, and and I looked at their SATs. The student, uh, the the average SATs for students was pretty high. It was higher than what I got when I went to college. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I had to think. You know, they're probably pretty good students there. So I think that's the the main reason I went is because I knew it was in. Uh, they they were getting good students. It was a relatively large department too. They told me, and I was kind of shocked by this, that they were graduating between 25 to 30 majors a year in chemistry, which is huge for a PUI. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I think I graduated with 10 people and that was like the biggest Franklin and Marshall I'd ever seen yeah. in, in, a, in a long time. So it was shocking how many students. So it was a number of students, the quality of students, and this, that apparently the institution had some, you know, good statistics, good numbers to show up pretty high in the U.S. News World Report rating. So I decided that was the biggest reason I decided was because I knew I would get good students mm-hmm. um, at TCNJ. And so what do you love the most about it now that you're there? 
Yeah. So what I love most is uh, right now, you know, it has morphed over the years. So first it was loving the students and enjoying mm -hmm. the students. Then it's morphed into enjoying my colleagues and how rich of a network that I've built over the years while I've been here outside of my um, department. So building, you know, relationships in physics and chemistry and then out of the school science, you know, we we work quite a bit with the, the queer people on campus. So uh, meeting the people in women and gender studies, meeting people in Afams, uh, African-American studies, uh, meeting people in sociology and having really interesting conversations with them mm -hmm. that I don't think I would have ever had if I had been in an R1 because you're kind of, um, you know, you kind of play in your own school and that's it. But that is probably what I love the most now is like the richness of, of ideas and and richness of scholarship that is happening around me and i think that's you know that's why i've been so successful because i network so much and work with people and really try to understand and respect their their scholarly interests mm -hmm. so kind of going along along with this how do you use your role as a professor and a pi to support lgbtq plus and other historically underrepresented minorities at the college of new jersey Awesome. That's a great question because, you know, you know, now that I, that I understand concepts of privilege and, and oppression, it, the main issue now is that I have the privilege to be super outspoken. Some people on this campus think I'm a pain in the ass and not just on this campus, it's nationally too, because I raise a lot of concerns about things like diversity, equity, inclusion. And right now, I, you know, I've been there for this is my 15th year. I'm promoted to full professor. I can't get any more promotions. I'm tenured. Uh, it's really hard to, to fire me. I had to do something pretty, really bad to get fired in a department that is very, you know, that is not likely to get cut. Um, so I have a lot of privilege to navigate controversial issues. So it was super helpful to work with groups in AFAM studies, African-American studies, women, gender studies. And now I also work closely with our education, educational opportunity fund program. So that's our EOF program, which has a high number of minority students and that come from historical regions of poverty in New Jersey. So I am there to advocate for them. And I don't think I would have gotten there without being uh, out and understand the, the concepts of privilege uh, in terms of sexuality and, and gender issues that are out there. So that complexity is actually the fascinating part and looking at my students with that complexity uh, and intersectionality, looking at all their different identities has been, has been super effective in terms of understanding students and understanding my colleagues where their ideas are coming from it's like oh you've never actually interacted or hung out with a black person to know that these issues are there I, that's that's tough and it's you know understanding that and then you can explain it you know i do have to play a lot of white fragility kind of uh games out there whatever fragility that you want to think about hetero fragility masculine fragility uh you know, knowing what those are out there and knowing the landmines that are out there has helped to navigate, <laughs> uh, you know, these difficult conversations. So it's pretty awesome. And I can't do it by myself. It's because I have so many colleagues around me that have helped me on this journey. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think going along with that, you just indirectly answered this question, but do you feel supported as an LGBTQ plus professor at the College of New Jersey? 
Yeah, for the most part, I do. I mean, you know, uh, you know, trying to, to understand why some people have had issues with me um, and, and my outspoken nature. You know, I've been told to be quiet many times. I've been shut down at meetings, talked over. And now I'm starting to figure out that's a combination of, you know, the, the gay identity, the queer identity, the, the, the non-binary identity, and the Asian identity, too. You know, this is the first time I've actually had to grapple with my Asian identity because I lived in that privilege for so long. But it's not very common to see an Asian man speak up at meetings and and the concept that, that Asian men are, are passive and and they're, you know, they're just work workers, you know, and breaking through that. So, you know, I think actually I see more of those issues. So I can't determine whether it's it's because of my queerness or because of my Asian identity or it's just their personality was to speak over everybody. So it, it, it's a challenge to figure out, but overall, super, super supportive, great colleagues. Right now, um, I, I'm supposed to get the call shortly, but I'm supposed to help run the LGBTQ faculty, staff, employee resource group. I'm supposed to get that email today, the former formal call <laughs> of that, but it's been great. I have to say, you know, if it weren't for my dean and, the, and we've had several provosts, um, they were all super supportive when they when they make their addresses they specifically mention the lgbtq plus community in their speeches um in terms of what they consider diversity so when i hear that i feel super supportive yeah Yeah. i think it's great all the things that you've done and thanks to people like you were able to do things like this for example being so vocal and so open about our experiences and our identities and and being able to share that experience with other people. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and so switching gears a little bit, um, how has been the adjustment for teaching during this pandemic? Wow, teaching during this pandemic, it's been really rough, kind of. I think managing the student and the student expectation has been the biggest challenge. Um, you know, I think I went to my first Zoom meeting in the spring and, you know, nobody turns on their cameras, they're all afraid of the camera. So I'm essentially talking to students into a blank space with just names up. Um, and nobody wants to speak up when I ask for responses. So it, it was a, a the switch was was challenging, I think, on that uh, front. However, we've been working on a lot of um, diversity, equity, inclusion designs for general chemistry. So I was teaching general chemistry one. And all the strategies that we figured out actually translated really well to the online atmosphere. So the the actual teaching and the teaching pedagogy uh, was a very straightforward transformation. And we recently wrote up those results in the for the journal Chemical Education. They had a COVID nineteen um, teaching or COVID nineteen teaching uh, special edition. So we were talking about you know some of the other research that we do at TCNJ with our sociologists. So working on a, a theory of change as opposed to um, a, a more traditional pedagogy and how that actually helped us to adapt. And it's very clear that a lot of the, the faculty that are in my department that kind of buy into our diversity, equity, inclusion work that we've been doing actually transition fairly smoothly. Besides the technical issues, besides you know, the student you know, lack of response and, and fear of the online system, a lot of us transition really well for that. And that actually worked out to our advantage in the fall. We're able to teach general chemistry almost identically as we would teach it in person. 
So that was actually pretty cool in terms of, of having a lot of super active learning, a lot of problem solving. And now the biggest challenge is how do you do exams in this online world without using lockdown browsers, without using Zoom video monitoring, which I think is a, is a horrible invasion of privacy, without using timed exams or like tightly timed exams because, you know, there are major implications for privacy and equity and inclusion. You know, I, I get it. Your, your intent is to stop cheating. Um, and I want to stop cheating as much as you, but what is your actual impact? So that's the question I keep asking everybody when they have these conference conversations. What is your actual impact? And impact to me is very clear to our marginalized students um, with crappy internet, with no quiet place to work. It's really challenging to do any kind of learning in those remote environments. But, um, you know, I think the diversity, equity, inclusion conversations we've been having have helped tremendously in terms of giving voice to the students that are, that are marginalized. Even if they don't want to say anything, I already know what the issues are. So I am happy to talk about them. And we talked about them a lot when we had our, our planning meetings for what the fall semester would look like. Yes. So in 2019, you were awarded the Educator of the Year Award from the National Organization for Gay and Lesbian Scientists and Technical Professionals. Can you tell us about how it felt to receive this award? And then what do you think it means to be a successful and influential educator? Awesome. So yeah, it was a huge honor. So a little bit of backstory of where that um, nomination came from. So I had participated in a uh, safe zone training at TCNJ. And then I ended up going to a conference. I think it was, it was either a noggle step conference or is an OSTEM conference. I can't remember which one I went to. And I met Eric Patridge, who was one of the former leaders of OSTEM. And maybe it was at an ACS meeting that I saw him. And he told me that there was a new NSF grant from the American Society of Engineering Educators that was looking for safe zone trainers. And and Eric linked me up with them because he knew that I had just done this safe zone training so um, that I could actually be a safe zone trainer. So I actually cold contacted uh, Stephanie Farrell at Rowan University in uh, New Jersey, in Glassboro, New Jersey, about the project and that I wanted to help and that I, I was already trained as a safe zone trainer. And she pulled me in immediately and she said that was the only cold contact she ever had for that for that, that group. So I got sucked into that a while ago. I don't even remember what year it was, but that is actually where I learned all the social science behind diversity, equity, inclusion. So I jumped into a full force and learned a whole lot of stuff, learned how to communicate better with my sociologist and WGS and AFAM study friends, learned about race theory, gender theory, and all of those kinds of great ways that great things that we never learn as STEM majors, unless you took a WGS class, a women gender studies class in undergrad. So once I started working uh, with them, I was one of their primary trainers for a while. And then, you know, we would talk at our meetings and I would always be talking about all the diversity, equity, inclusion stuff we're doing at TCNJ and how that group influenced me so much. 
uh, on there. So that group actually was the one they, they uh, I think it's the VCP, the virtual community of practice uh, for the safe zone training was the group that nominated me. So Stephanie Farrell nominated me for the award. He said, you'd be great for this because of all the equity inclusion work you're doing that's beyond just the queer populations and queer student body. So yeah, it was really great. And I think what it means to me is that it actually validated all this extra work that I've been putting into these kinds of activities. So one of the things that comes up for queer faculty and faculty of color is that there's all this hidden work that we have to do. Um, so you have extra advising, you have extra, you're asked to be on almost every single committee that's about diversity, equity, inclusion. And that's coupled with sometimes your colleagues do not value that kind of work on there. So you're doing all this extra work it may or may not be valued by the tenure and promotion process, but this award was great because it actually validated, you know, the reasons why I was doing this, this kind of work. And there's not that many people that get national awards at my school, mostly because they're not nominated for it. I would have to say that, you know, I got this national teaching award. I'm not the best teacher in my department. <laughs> I'm not the best instructor in my department, but, um, pushing the boundaries of what we're doing in terms of teaching and learning, which comes with it a lot of pitfalls and, and, you know, bad reviews on occasion when you're trying to, to experiment with your teaching. So it, it was really great to get that validation. Um, and it pushed me forward to do more work um, at the American Chemical Society. And it, it really launched other kinds of activities and gave me recognition for all this extra work that you have to do that you may not be valued in the tenure and promotion process. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations for that. So in going along with this, in addition to doing chemistry research, you also do uh, research on equity in education with an interdisciplinary team. Can you tell us about how this got started and then what's the current situation or the current state of this research? Awesome. So we first got started. Um, so uh, I was invited to be on an NSF STEM grant. So that was a scholarship for, for STEM majors, particularly from marginalized groups. And that was the first place where I really started thinking about equity inclusion. And that was 13 years ago that I was invited to, to be a part of the team. And then they got the grant. We started doing the work. And I discovered like a lot of my preconceived notions about students were completely wrong in there. So that's where it really started. As we started doing this program, I got tapped into our Educational Opportunity Fund uh, program, EOF. They actually approached me about doing a program with them to help their STEM students succeed. And so that was really cool to, to be asked to do that. Because, you know, a lot of times the, these groups of color, you know, these programs for marginalized students, they tend not to ask people unless they know your track record to work with uh, their students. And so it was really honored to actually get asked to, to work with them. And about the same time we were asked to work with them, we tried a couple of things. Uh, we got a new sociologist, and that would be Dr. Lynn Gaisley. 
and it was funny because my dean, uh, Jeff Osborne, he's been one of my biggest advocates um, at TCNJ. He's now our provost at TCNJ. So I'm really sad to see him go as a dean, but now uh, we get to see him in higher places. But he pulled me aside and said, hey, Benny, you need to go have coffee with Lynn Gaisley. And I'm like, oh, who's that? And I'm like, oh, you should just talk to her. Just go make an appointment go talk to her. And she did a postdoc at Northwestern uh, studying biomedical students um, and biomedical students going to, to research careers. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I, I sent her a message and we had coffee and we completely hit it off. She talked to me about, you know, she was studying how uh, biomedical research students were, particularly from marginalized backgrounds, how they were navigating graduate programs in there. So it was really kind of shocking because everything she told me was exactly what I saw was happening to our students of color in STEM at the undergraduate level. So it was that quick link there that I knew <laughs> that what she had studied in the past probably applied to what we were doing and that she would be a great advocate. And she was new on the campus and she didn't really know too many people. And it's like, oh, you know, that sounds like a cool project. Um, and she joined us and it's like, that was it. <laughs> and that was a good, probably she's been here for almost 10 years. Yeah, so about 10 years ago. And, you know, trying to pull her along, we pull each other along uh, quite a bit. So she's where I really got the deep dive into to social science theories and how to do interviews. And we're now working on coding data and looking at qualitative data and the power of qualitative data. So the, the research project that we first started was, you know, why do students um, succeed and fail from STEM majors? And that was super important in our diversity, equity, inclusion work because we learned so much about our students by studying them using qualitative interview methods and hearing their stories and hearing their voices and, and hearing how bad it actually was for the Black and Latinx students on our campus and what they were dealing with on a daily basis. And so a lot of the programs started off as, as let's go ahead and fix the student and get the students to, you know, adapt to our programs. Now that to me, that sounds very assimilationist and it, it's very, it's very tone deaf to, to expect students to all of a sudden, you know, be like one of us and do all the things that we do, make the same decisions we do about schoolwork and family. That is really a bad way to go. And now that project has transformed into an HHMI, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Inclusive Excellence uh, grant. And now we're trying to fix the structural issues of redesigning the entire first two years curriculum of all of our school of science departments. So chemistry, biology, physics, and mathematics. So I've been very much involved with the general chemistry revisions for the last few years. And that's why I said our teaching strategies work well for online because it was all group work. It was all problem solving. And we were using online videos to deliver content. So uh, with a whole bunch of other interventions that we figured out from this research program. We just got funded for our next IU's grant. <laughs> uh, so we just heard Amazing. the news. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so our next group is what we've noticed is that faculty that work with marginalized students and working on these redesigned teams for the HHMI are undergoing huge transformations. And now it's about, you know, how do we get the 
the culture to shift for the faculty to make systematic changes for diversity, equity, inclusion. And now with, uh, you know, with all the protests, the George Floyd Black Lives Matters protests on there, we can stop pretending what we were doing. So we were playing a lot with white fragility. Oh, this is about student success. It's about that. No, now we're going to start pushing out that this is about anti-racism, anti-classism. This is what we're doing. This is anti-racist and this is anti-classes. Get on board now <laughs> on these kind of concepts because this is where the future of this, this school is going to go. And we, we also now have a vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion. And that's his primary goal is to work on anti-racism, anti-classism kind of experiences. And I'm also there always pulling on the, the queer card. Um, because often when, when people talk about anti-racism, anti-classism, you forget about the intersectional nature of, of the queer people and the queer voices in there. So, uh, you know, I think having a queer person at the table is actually super important to make sure we're thinking about other marginalized identities. Um, and also there's, a, there's the Asian, you know, there's a difference in Asian students too, depending on whether, you know, you're South Asian or Southeast Asian or whether... Uh, you're East Asian. So there's a lot of different differences that are all lumped together for those students. So thinking about these complexities of, of our transformations has been really important. So, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, again, like Geraldo said earlier, it's, it's amazing that professors like you are, are pushing for that type of change, that type of structural change in, in departments and schools across the country. I think like I don't know. It's it's really inspiring and exciting to see um, education moving in in that direction. And it's a slow change, right? But I don't know. Even even making changes like that on on the small scale of of your specific environment is is exciting. I think so. And it, it's right on point. What you said, not making the students change to fit the institution, the institution, but change you know the foundations of what the institution is to fit the students because students have diverse experience diverse backgrounds and it's not fair to try to put them all in the same group i don't know it's yeah i think it's amazing work by what you're all doing yeah yeah and it gets even more uh, you know now that i've been thinking about this even more deeply you know the entire chemistry curriculum is based on on our math preparation, which is extraordinarily classist. And so the question that I'm asking now is like, you know, if our entire foundation is built on mathematics, which is classist, does that mean that our entire, that we're essentially our entire structure was built on something that was designed on racism and classism. So yeah. that means our entire curriculum and everything that follows from it is, you know, is rotten to the core and what does that actually mean do we deconstruct everything and start from scratch from this you know i personally i don't know how to think about that but i'm hoping that there's going to be people that are thinking about that yeah. because yeah. i can imagine based on this mathematics you know what happens if we get some super creative people that are so into organic chemistry that doesn't require a lot of math right yeah organic chemistry doesn't require a lot of math yeah yet Gen Chem is the stepping stone to get to organic, which is a lot of math. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens when you get students that are just super creative about thinking about organic chemistry and that visual nature there, 
that don't get stuck on the mathematics. Um, So, you know, what does that look like in the future? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a fascinating place that I want to, that's like the world I want to live in that, you know, lots of different people can do chemistry and do different kinds of chemistry Mm -hmm. and still be valued in there. Yeah. Definitely. So kind of going along with a lot of your experience during your time at the College of New Jersey has been in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And like we've kind of talked about a little bit, there has recently been a huge interest from the field of chemistry, the area of academia in general, in the, in the last couple months stemming from the murder of George Floyd and all of these Black Lives Matter protests that have been kind of sustained throughout the entirety of the summer. So what is your opinion on this kind of newfound interest in these initiatives? Um, We've also talked a lot about performative allyship. And so how do you think these initiatives and this interest from the field, how do you think those are progressing? And what do you think we can be doing better, especially moving away from performative allyship? I know that was like a big loaded question, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot to to unpack there. So, you know, let's first start about, you know, this huge wave of, of, you know, these, these Black Lives Matter statements and all these kinds of kind of things. And, and I've read most of them that had come out and, you know, and I think a lot of them say lots of good things but the question is now is, is there actually any physical action afterwards? And I'm going to guess, so, you know, based on the, the concept that I said earlier, that I think that, you know, chemistry was built on a foundation of classism and it's actually extraordinarily conservative. So, and I have found chemists to be extraordinarily conservative in terms of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think some of that comes to when we think about a yield, all right? When we're thinking about a yield in a reaction, we are so happy when we have 90% yield. Um, like, I, I think an organic chemist would be cheering, uh, you know, if they have a multi-step reaction and they get a 90% yield. What happened to that last 10%? Or, you know, if you get a 95% yield, what happened to that last 5%? And that's sometimes what we're talking about in diversity, equity, inclusion. So I think based on our fundamental training, we're not always thinking about that, that small percentage of people that, that are left behind. So, and we're just happy that, you know, on average, everybody's doing really well. So I, I feel like that's where our diversity, equity, inclusion is. It, it's, it's, it's going to be problematic in the long run because people are saying that what they're going to do, but they're not actually going to do anything about it. Or it's going to move so slow that it's, it's going to not really make any changes that, that make people actually do better um, and feel better about this. So I think it's going to be a, a huge challenge to see what actions are actually coming about from this. And so, and I'll talk about this right now. I'm also on the Committee on Minority Affairs with the American Chemical Society. You know, ACS put out a statement after the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protest started and I almost threw up when I read the first version of it. It was, it was really bad. But I had to sit there and say to myself, they wouldn't write anything for anything else. <sighs> like anything that has happened in the past and all of a sudden they're writing something. So does that mean that there's a change? 
So, you know, being on Committee on Minority Affairs for the last, um, I don't even know how long, it's been, it's been a while, over five years, you know, we had like the Charlottesville come up and we had some other issues come up with the fracking and the, the oil lines going through indigenous land, you know, and ACS would not put out a statement from that. Because usually what would happen when they put out any statement, there would be a very vocal, small group of chemists that would sit there and say, that's not chemistry, you know, that's political, and that, that's a problem. The difference with the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter is Twitter lit on fire after that statement came out. And that fire has actually lit a whole bunch of changes at ACS that are not as visible as I think it should be. I wish they, sh they would be much more public about it. I happen to know because I work so closely with uh, Committee on Minority Affairs and our chair, our current chair, she's about to be our past chair, uh, Dr. Ann Kimball. And we worked on a new Black Lives Matter statement that Luis Echegoyen actually made a video presentation for that, which was much better. It was much, it was a lot better. But ACS is actually trying to do quite a bit in terms of changes to the chemistry industry, the chemical enterprise. So I'm really proud of the group, but I think it was because of Twitter that really helps. So all the, the people that are out on Twitter, you know, sitting there raising concerns about this, this really milk toast statement that they put out that was really, it yeah, it, it just made me sick. I was about ready to give up my entire ACS membership and, and never go back because of it. Um, but I'm glad I stuck around a little bit for to see the after effects. So I think things are slowly changing. So another place that it's changing is the um, ACS CPT Committee on Professional Training uh, guidelines for undergraduate degrees. They're actually putting diversity, equity, inclusion in there and what a, um, a department should do to, to get minimum requirements and recognition for doing that kind of work. So, you know, those are structural changes. Telling a group of people, you know, we're, ACS is a giant accrediting agency for undergraduate degrees. So telling all the undergraduate programs, you have to have a diversity, equity, inclusion program, a component to your degree, you know, is a big deal. So that's another example of, you know, systemic changes that are coming out. I don't know when they're going to be official, but I, I've seen previews of it and I'm actually pretty happy with what's coming out there. Of course, like you said, you know, that, that performative kind of allyship, you know, how departments interpret it is going to vary widely because I'm my, our department chair and our department seems to buy in, you know, most of our department buys into this. You can know we're going to take it super seriously, but I don't know how many departments actually will and are just going to do the minimum to get by <laughs> from that. So it'd be really sad if that happens, but it's still better than nothing. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, definitely. I think in the age of social media, I think, and especially chem Twitter and, and academia Twitter, it's kind of double-edged a little bit in that, like, I think performative allyship is easier than ever. And, you know, writing a statement or writing a little thing um, and posting it everywhere, you know, you can get a lot of clout and a lot of cheers and gold stars uh, for doing what what we all kind of think of as maybe the bare minimum of just like acknowledging that there is a problem. But I think the other side of social media and, and of Twitter is that there is a huge rising of graduate students, postdocs, faculty members, professors in, in different institutions who are saying, you know, 
this might be a good first step, but there's so much more that we have to do. I think like Geraldo and I are, are really plugged into like the queer network of graduate students at different departments, just from Twitter and from doing this podcast. And, um, and it's, it's been really cool to see the amount of pushback that graduate students are starting to give on their departments, you know? Even at the University of Michigan, like we're, we're definitely not perfect. We pride ourselves on being very progressive. I think there's still lots of areas that we need to be better on, especially when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I think that, you know, even if all of those changes aren't happening as fast as we want them to, I think that the new generation of graduate students, of postdocs, of faculty members are really pushing that more explicitly than ever before, at least from what I understand. So that that at least gives me hope for where this field is going. So. Right, yeah. And the biggest thing that I, I am afraid of is, you know, the, the tenure and promotion process is so riddled with problems in terms of the uppity new faculty member and so you know I, I wonder what departments are going to do when they get these new group of students that are super <laughs> woke about diversity <laughs> equity inclusion and all of a sudden they're they're questioning everything I've done for the last 30 years is all racist are you sure that that's right I'm like yeah it is but you yeah. know and what does that do to tenure and promotion processes and and vulnerable um positions you know there's a power differential in there and then the question is do you wait until you're you're tenured before you say anything or do you just yeah. start out full guns blazing and see what happens yeah you know, it's it's a major power dynamic that that we have to navigate in this world but i think you're right i think you know the you know with social media the public opinion is is definitely on our side and i think it's going to move forward so one of our last questions, who is your biggest role model in chemistry and why? And you can have okay. more than one if you have multiple. <laughs> uh, all right. So, you know, I've been thinking about this question and, and it's, it's complicated. But, um, you know, I think, you know, my most immediate role models, I talked about them earlier, is Peter Dorhout. Um, you know, I really liked his perspective and, you know, as, as essentially a white dude who was super supportive of me and his whole attitude towards the American Chemical Society, he was very active with ACS. I think that is the reason why um, I've been so successful because of him and modeling my life after him. Um, you know, being a strong researcher, being super active with ACS helped to propel my career forward. Uh, in there. I would have never been linked up with the American Society of Engineering Educators if I wasn't so active with the ACS. So I think that is probably my most immediate role model uh, for that. And I guess my other role model probably be my PhD advisor, Tom Malouk. So I had a lot of problems in grad school, probably in the last six months. It was because I, you know, it, it's hard to get out uh, in there. But the other thing that he taught me was to don't be afraid to jump into new projects. So even if you don't have a lot of expertise in it, you can probably still jump into it. And without that kind of um, lack of fear, I probably would have never jumped into the social sciences equity kind of work and, and actually built a career around it. So being willing to go outside of the box, outside of my comfort zone, I think is, is one of the, the, the 
great things that we do. And other people, you know, other role models, you know, lots of people in ACS, you know, particularly in the Committee of Minority Affairs, the Women Chemists Committee, a lot of those folks have been amazing, the chemists with disabilities, uh, and working with those folks. So, you know, trying to surround myself with a, a group of diverse chemists has been, you know, overall super supportive. And of course, I would not be here without the, the, the LGBT group that's at ACS. So that's the reason why I joined, I started volunteering for ACS is because they have gay mixers and, and presidential events for receptions. That's at every fall meeting. So going to those, making networks, finding people that I really like hanging out with, you know, they, they were all super critical in terms of role models, in terms of how to behave at ACS. Um, not behave, but how to interact and volunteer and put my time into the ACS uh, in there. So it's pretty cool. Amazing. So last question, where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you? Awesome. So I'm on a couple of different places. Uh, I keep my Facebook kind of personal uh, on there, but it's a mixture of personal pressure, uh, professional. Um, so if you find me on Facebook, it, uh, you know, you're welcome to add me. Uh, but you know, my I turned on my Instagram to be open. So I use Instagram to post pictures onto Facebook uh, these days. So, uh, and I also am on Twitter um, and both Instagram and Twitter is uh, Dr. Benny C um, on both those sites. Um, so uh, you can find me on there and I'm hoping to advertise quite a bit. Uh, we have an opening that's coming up in our chemistry department. So Ooh, we are going to go on the job search. So, and we are looking for diverse candidates. That's my number one goal is to get as many diverse candidates to our shortlist as possible. So we're looking at a broad range of what diversity and inclusion is. So we're hoping to get some queer applicants um, uh, and chemists of color uh, to come to TCNJ and work at this amazing place. That's exciting. Yeah, that is so exciting. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was that was all we had for you. Um, this was an amazing conversation. Yeah, it was um, really good. It was great learning about your career path and, and all that you've accomplished. Yeah, very inspiring too. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm um, happy yeah. to chat with all of you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Bye. Right, bye. Bye. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. We hope that y'all will continue to support us like you have done so far. And remember that Black Lives Matter today and every day. We hope that y'all are being safe and healthy and continue to support each other during this pandemic. Remember to fill out the nomination form on our Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQCPOT. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. Adios. Bye.